0: This is a one and all media podcast.
1: Hey, this is Pastor Jeff. What I find is a lot of people are really interested in pursuing Christ, but there's a few things they believe, Christians believe, that they just can't get their head around. And we're gonna deal with those in hopes of helping people discover the truth about Christ and Christianity
0: Today today with Jeff Fiennes. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fiennes. We're starting a new series titled The Trouble with Christianity. Pastor Jeff's aim for this series of messages is to help clear up some things that some people commonly think Christians believe in. No matter where you are in your faith, if you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, or maybe you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're listening to this, trying to figure out what it's all about, this is a great message to help give you an understanding about others and hopefully clear up some of your questions about Christianity. Pastor Jeff will be referring to the book of Galatians. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Let's join Pastor Jeff now.
1: If you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you'll turn to a book called Galatians. It's about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. I'm in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 through 12. Interesting dialogue here. Uh, I just want to welcome you. I'm glad you're here. You're safe here. We want you to be allowed to ask your questions and investigate further this relationship with Jesus that we think has the power to absolutely transform your life. So if you've turned to Galatians 2, I'll get there in a moment. This week, as I was making preparations, I was reminded of one of my favorite cute little stories about a man from Punjab, India. And he's in a conversation with a Texan and both discover that they're farmers. And so, you know, everything's big in Texas. So the Texan asked the Punjabi farmer, he said, how how large is your farm back in India? And he said, well, if you look over at that lamppost, about 50 yards from here, uh, 50 yards from right here where we're standing, and you square that out. That's about how big my farm is. And then he looked to the Texan and he said, well, how big is your farm? And the Texan, you know, again, everything's big in Texas, just smiled. And he said, you know, if I wake up on any given morning, the sun is up and I get in my car, I can just drive for hours and hours. And somewhere around noon, I'll finally get to the end of my farm. And the farmer from Punjab, Indian said, yeah, I used to have a car just like that. Sometimes culture is so counter to what we're used to that we have a difficult time in believing something. To the Punjab farmer, I'm sure a a land that big, a farm that big was just out of the question. I've learned over the course of being a Christ follower and a pastor that there are actually some people who do want to believe. They want to be a Christ follower. They've looked at the worldview and they figure that it's coherent, makes a lot of sense to them but there are still some issues they just can't get their head around because of their cultural context. They just have a hard time believing that Jesus could teach something like this, that Christians could believe something like this, and actually it represents reality. So in their minds, it's just too difficult to get their mind across. It's too difficult for them to come to terms with it. So we're starting a new series that's going to go for two or three weeks here. We understand that to the seeker, to the person who's looking to find the answers in Christ and in the Christian worldview, there are still some issues that they have to come to terms with. I want to start this weekend by a major obstacle. and Let me just stop and say again, some of you who are Christ followers, believers who come to church quite often, you're probably thinking, do we have to do this? Can I just remind you, yes, it is our calling. It's not only our vision, it is our calling to help people far from God, come near to God. But as we're doing that, I can promise you there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow for you as well because you will have your faith and trust in Christ solidified through the truth of Scripture. So this first major obstacle, if I were to state it, it would go like this. A person would say, you know, I want to be a Christ follower. I've looked at the Christian worldview. The thing that bothers me though, the objection that I have, objection number one, Christians claim that they know the way everybody else should be living and they claim their ways the better way, and they seem Christians. They seem to want to tell the rest of us how we should live, and that's not good. And they say the reason is because such a belief like that undermines freedom. You tend to oppress people who disagree with you, and Christians themselves are not free to do as they really want to do. They're bound up by these laws or restrictions, and quite frankly, I'm not interested in that. When I hear that conversation, I remember a song that I used to listen to quite often by Billy Joel. Now we're going back. Only the good die young. And one of the phrases says this. They showed you a statue and told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. Ah, but they never told you the price that you'd pay for things that you might have done. So the objection even by Billy Joel back in the 80s is Christians are bound by this moral code that restricts fun and freedom. Therefore... What I hear people say often today is that I'm not really open to Christianity. So let's make sure we state this very clearly from the beginning. The idea is that claiming to know the truth, claiming that you have it and that you know it, robs you of your freedom. You're restricted by that truth, and it will cause you to oppose those who disagree with you. Therefore, you will isolate yourself from people who don't agree with you. You will discriminate against people who don't agree with you, and you'll become this kind of pious, self-righteous person that's difficult to tolerate. Now, how do we as Christ followers respond to that? Especially when we follow a teacher who said in John 8:32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, how is it that we can have such opposite views here? The world tells you that truth and the claim to have truth will restrict your freedom. Jesus says truth and your ability to discern and to take hold of truth will actually cause or result in freedom. So I think as a Christ follower, we respond to this, and it's related again to Galatians 2. We're given a great image of this in three ways. Number one, we have to ask, is truth really the enemy of freedom? Two, is ultimate freedom really possible? And three, is Jesus liberating? Okay, number one, is truth the enemy of freedom really? Is ultimate freedom, ultimate freedom, the way we... Uh, define it as autonomy, possible? And is Jesus liberating? So first, let's let's get in here. The first part's difficult. It's one of these messages. We go into a little bit of a uh, philosophical apologetics, but if you'll stay with me at the end of it, we'll go to the pragmatic part, and I think it'll become clear. So first, philosophically speaking, is truth really the enemy to freedom? The context of Galatians is an important one. When Peter preached the good news of the gospel in Acts chapter 2, he revealed how God had been working all through history. So all the rituals and the sacrificial system in Jewish history had all been a foreshadowing of one day what God was going to do through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's all these rituals and uh, practices that kind of uh, would guide the people of Israel into a greater understanding one day of the coming Messiah. A good example of that is something like Yom Kippur with which most of us are familiar. This one uh, celebration day in which in the Old Testament, the priests would come into the temple And he would go before the altar and he would lay his hands on the goat and it would transfer all the sins of the people on this celebration of Yom Kippur. It would transfer the sins of the people onto the head of this goat. And then a Gentile actually would come into the temple and escort the goat into the wilderness and the people would applause and praise and they would worship saying, you know, the goat has left the building. There go our sins, never do return to us again. So that practice then when Jesus came as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, where all the sins, past, present, future, were transferred upon the Lamb of God, upon His shoulders, that practice of Yom Kippur, as it was once practiced, never needed to be practiced again. The problem is that Paul began to teach the Gentiles and the Jews that Christ had fulfilled all the requirements of the law, the feasts, the rituals, the scapegoats, the circumcisions, which I'm, I'm pretty sure they were, they were glad about that. They were pointers to something far greater. However... Peter was being influenced now by the religious ritualistic Jews to convince the Gentiles that they still had to practice these ceremonies. So in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Galatians, the Bible says this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So some of the Jewish leaders who still wanted the Gentiles to keep Jewish rituals actually sent spies to make sure the Gentiles were doing that. Paul hears about this, and he says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul says, we actually have freedom in Christ because of the truth of the gospel. Because of the truth of the gospel and the freedom that we have, we're no longer bound by those ceremonial laws, those religious rituals. Now, I find this interesting. Our culture says, if you comply with the truth, you'll lose your freedom. Paul says, if you discover the truth, it will lead to ultimate freedom, not restriction. So again, we ask the question: how can there be such a, an opposite idea here? And it has a lot to do with the evolution of culture. Let me let me trace you've always heard me say that we are always products of the culture in which we are born and raised. You can't help it. So your thinking tends to go along the same lines as the thinking of the modern culture before you. So whether it's postmodern, modern, Gen X, Gen Z, whatever. Well A modern-day philosopher that's had incredible influence on our generation, actually, I think he only died in 1984, is a French philosopher by the name of Foucault. And he said this, truth is a thing for this world. It is produced only by multiple forms of constraint, and that includes the regular effects of power. Now, what he means by that is simply this, truth claims are power plays. So when somebody comes along and says, you have the truth, and this is important because this is how our culture's been sensitize or desensitize, when you say that you have the truth, you are merely trying to get power over people. So be wary of anybody having the truth claim. They're trying to control you or constrain you in some way. Claiming to have the truth is a way to manipulate people to get them to do what you want them to do. Now, French philosopher Foucault was actually a disciple of Nietzsche. And Nietzsche introduced what we call the suspicion of hermeneutics. Uh, what is that? Well, let's, let's give a few examples. Rather than trying to define it, let me just illustrate it. If someone comes along and says, everyone should promote justice, that is a truth that everyone should adhere to, Nietzsche would commit what they call the Nietzschean squint. He'd kind of look at you and say, oh, you're calling for everyone to justice, are you? Why are you calling everyone to justice? Is it because you love justice? Or is it because you want to start a revolution with you at the top? and you're really looking for power, power is what you really want. Now that's, as a disciple of Foucault, that's exactly what Foucault would say, that any true claim is a power play. Another example, maybe a Christ follower comes along and says, everyone should obey the word of God. Nietzsche would have the Nietzschean squint, and he would do something like so. Everyone should obey God's word, should they? Is it because you really love God's word, or is it because you want to establish your own moral superiority over everyone? You want to justify yourself and your group, and you don't want to associate with a certain group of people who aren't holy and pious like you. So what you really want is power. Now, you might stop and say, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, whose side are you on? And the answer is I'm on Jesus' side, and I know this is going to surprise a lot of you, but Foucault and Nietzsche are right. To a degree, that's exactly what Jesus said about the Pharisees, the religious people. They devoted reams and reams of laws in an attempt to control the people that kept them in power as religious authorities. They needed, the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, needed to justify their existence, their grouping. So they would enslave the people around them because that's what religion usually does. Keep all these laws, make all of these journeys, eat this food, don't eat this food, keep these ceremonies. And we'll make sure that you're in good standing with God. Just do what we tell you to do as the religious authorities and we'll make sure you're good with God. Now, it might surprise you again to discover that Jesus taught that truth claims are often a way of getting power, controlling people, getting them to do what you want them to do. And that was his major response with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people of his day. However, if you insist that all truth claims all of the time are always, every time, power plays, then not only are you wrong, but you're self-defeating and inherently contradictory. Think for a moment. When you say to me, all truth claims are power plays, you've just made a truth claim. Which means I can ask you, why are you trying to get power over me? You, you with me? Once you say all truth claims are power plays, you've just made a truth Claim, which leads me to believe it's a power play. You're trying to get me to do something you want me to do. C.S. Lewis described this very well. He said, you cannot go on explaining away forever, or you will find that you end up explaining yourself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. For example, it is good that you can see through a window, but that's only because the garden behind it is opaque. But if you could see through everything, if everything was transparent, a wholly transparent world would be an invisible world. And to see through everything would be the same as not to see anything. Now, what's he saying? This is the heavy part. Remember, if you were to say to me, Pastor Jeff, and I hear this all the time, you believe what you believe about God, not because it's true, doesn't have anything to do with truth, but because it helps you deal with some psychological issue in some way, maybe guilt, or maybe it's a crutch that you need to, to make it through the difficulties of life. And then the person will say something like, therefore, all statements about God and religion have nothing to do with truth, but are merely psychological statements to help you deal with your guilt and your insecurity. Now, what is the problem with that statement? Is that not a statement about God and religion? Remember, you've just said all statements about God and religion are merely psychological statements to help you deal with guilt and insecurity. But wait a minute. The statement you just made is a statement about God and about ultimate reality and about religion. So you've just explained away your own explanation, which means I don't have to listen to you. Evolutionary biologists are telling us something similar. They're saying everything your mind tells you about God, interesting, it's always about God, everything your mind tells you about God or morality and truth is really just hardwired chemistry into your brain so that you can pass on the genetic code for survival. Truth has nothing to do with it. Now, think about that. Did your brain not just tell you that? So if you can't trust anything as truth that your brain tells you, you've just failed your own test. Your statement, therefore, has nothing to do with truth, so I don't have to listen to you. So when someone says, no one just makes truth claims, that's always a power play, always. Guess what? You've just made a truth claim that is the ultimate power play because now you can go around bursting everybody's balloon. Truth claim, pal, truth claim, pal. The only problem is, sooner or later, you're going to have to burst your own balloon and you're right back to where you started. Philosophically speaking, everybody makes truth claims. That's not the issue. The issue is which truth claims represent reality and which truth claims lead to oppression and which truth claims lead to freedom. That's the issue. So let's come back down to earth for a moment. That's the philosophical work. It was hard, but the rest of it will be sure easily to follow. Pragmatic. I just watched a movie called Greyhound, uh, Tom Hanks. In the movie Greyhound, he plays a U.S. Navy commander, Ernest Krauss, and he leads this U.S. convoy across the Atlantic during World War II. So he's responsible to lead all of these ships to protect them on this aircraft carrier. The problem is the German U-boats in those days were wreaking havoc upon uh, basically the Allies, all the Allies. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I remember reading that U-boats sank somewhere around 5,000 Allied vessels during World War II. 5,000. So these U-boats uh, could not be detected by radar. Somehow they were, had the ability to shut down the sound and then suddenly surface and, and do incredible damage. So the movie itself, you're on edge for the entire 98 minutes. It's fast-paced, action-packed, unending drama. And to make sure you know that, there's this running theme throughout the movie where the captain never has time to eat. As soon as he sits down to eat, something else happens for which he's not prepared. He's constantly on edge, waiting for the next U-boat to surface, and he's being taunted by the German commander over the airwaves at the same time. Now, I watched this movie a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, How much more peace and freedom would Captain Krause have if somehow he were to know the truth about all the U-boats, where they were, when they would appear? Then he could rest and eat and prepare for the next invasion. In other words, truth could lead to a measured, calculated response that would bring enormous amount of freedom. So yes, truth can lead to power plays and oppression. No doubt it always has and always will and religion is culpable. But truth can also lead to peace, patience, and freedom. And the modern idea that you have to get away from the truth to be free is preposterous. Only when you really know the truth can you be truly free. You know this pragmatically. If you know the truth about a car, you're not going to drive it into the ocean. You'll keep it on the road, and you'll experience incredible freedom on the motorway. If you violate design, however, you will destroy the car and there'll be no freedom. You would have used your freedom to take away your freedom. If you know the truth about a sailboat, you're not going to attempt to drive it on the motorway. You know that boats and pavement don't get along very well. So the fact is, if you know the truth about the design of any object, you will use it appropriately so as not to destroy it and yourself. Freedom, freedom with knowledge of the truth brings an enormous amount of uh, liberty, Enormous. So quickly, number one, is truth the enemy of freedom? No, it's not. Second, is freedom defined as absolute absence of restrictions even possible? Is it possible to be that free without any restrictions? Now, going back to the passage in Galatians 2, I'm in verse 9 and 10 now. James, Cephas, and John, Peter, James, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, that's the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. So let me go back to the context. The first century Jews were not wealthy. They had suffered years of captivity and oppression under the Roman authorities, but the Gentiles were a different story. Many of them had accrued wealth and power under Roman rule. So as Paul goes up to make the defense of the gospel, the gospel of grace, and reiterates this truth that the Jewish believers need to stop this idea of forcing the Gentiles to keep religious rituals that have been fulfilled, totally fulfilled by Christ. Paul convinces the Jews, but then they remind him of something. It's almost like they say, Paul, okay, you've convinced us. We're we're wrong here. We need to straighten up. We need to repent. However, there's something we want you to tell the Gentiles. And that is this: part of the gospel of grace is that they are to be taking care of the needs of the poor. Okay, they can learn so we can learn something from them, but they can learn something from us. Give them the good news is give them the good news rather that the gospel is freeing, and we're no longer bound by all these rites and rituals. But as Christ's followers, ethical norms remain. We are instructed to take care of the poor. So you go up there and you remind those affluent Gentile Christians of their responsibility because of their wealth to take care of the brothers in poverty. Yes, we are free in Christ, but that doesn't mean we can live any way we want. You can't spend your money any way you want. You can't commit adultery, murder, lie, steal, cheat. Those things are off limits. So in verse four, we have the idea that we're free. But then in verse 10, we have this idea that we're restricted. And modern people see that and they'll say, wait, I thought freedom is the absence of restriction. The absence of all constraints and here's my response no you don't and you never have you're just applying that into a place where it seems convenient but in reality you are very well aware that freedom never means total autonomy there are always restrictions even within freedom
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: John uses the word logos, translated word, and it is a loaded philosophical term. In Jesus' day, logos came to mean the reason for my existence. The Greek philosophers, Continue to ask the question ad nauseum: why are we here? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of my life? You can listen to more messages like this.
0: Just search for Today with Jeff fines wherever you listen to podcasts.